This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. What's the first thing you would do if you had an extra hour in your day? Would you meditate? Would you go for a run? Maybe you'd just like to rest for a while or take a nap. Therapy can help you find and prioritize what matters most so you can do more of it. It's a great way to increase self-awareness, develop coping skills, alter negative behaviors, and more. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash insight hour today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash insight hour. A new year is a new chance to focus on you. You're probably already picturing yourself struggling at the gym, but not all self-help has to mean suffering. Squeeze.com is making it easier than ever to elevate your wellness by delivering a juice cleanse right to your doorstep. It's the easiest juice cleanse you'll ever do that may aid in weight loss, eliminating bloating, clearing your skin, boosting your energy levels, improving sleep, and breaking bad eating habits. Meet all your health goals from the comfort of your home. Get free same-day local delivery or fast free delivery nationwide with code WONDERY today at squeezed.com. Welcome to the Joseph Goldstein Insight Hour. This podcast is an expression of our shared interest in self-discovery. Join Joseph as he shares his deep knowledge of the path of mindfulness. If you are interested in supporting this podcast, please go to BeHereNowNetwork.com slash Joseph. Last week we began the discussion of the pivotal second step of the Noble Eightfold Path, namely right thought. Because our views lead to the way we think about things, and then our thoughts lead to actions with all their attendant consequences, it's important that we cultivate those thoughts and intentions that lead to our own happiness and welfare and the happiness and welfare of others. So thought becomes the pivotal point in this whole unfolding of our lives. As the Buddha said, bhikkhus, whatever one frequently thinks and ponders upon, that will become the inclination of the mind. I find that those few lines could become a reflection for one's whole life. Just remembering that. Whatever one frequently thinks and ponders upon, that will become the inclination of the mind. So as you might remember, the Buddha defined right thought, the step on the path, as thoughts of renunciation that is, thoughts free of sense desire, thoughts of goodwill, which are thoughts free of ill will, aversion, and thoughts of compassion, which are thoughts free of cruelty, 
So we've already spoken of the first of these, that is the rewards of renunciation. So tonight I'd like to continue with the second part of right thought, which is the cultivation of goodwill, of loving-kindness. The poet Rilke, in some beautiful language, captured the richness <coughs> of this possibility, this way of being in the world with others. He said, once the realization is accepted that even between the closest people, infinite distances exist, a marvelous living side by side can grow up for them if they succeed in loving the expanse between them, which gives them the possibility of always seeing each other as a whole and before an immense sky. In our lives, we sometimes meet people who can see us whole, who see us whole as before an immense sky, who don't judge, who don't discriminate, and who seem to radiate feelings of genuine goodwill, genuine loving-kindness towards everyone they meet. Now, they may be well-known people like His Holiness the Dalai Lama, or Mother Teresa, or Martin Luther King Jr., or Gandhi. They may be different teachers that we've met who just radiate this feeling of love. Or they may be ordinary people in our lives who have this very great capacity for love. For those of you who've had the opportunity to meet His Holiness the Dalai Lama, you know that when you meet him, it feels like you are the most important person in the world. And that's because in that moment for him you are. He's giving you his undivided, complete, total attention. And we feel that. He said, I try to treat whoever I meet as an old friend. That would be a wonderful practice for us, to really take that to heart and to, to practice treating everyone we meet as an old friend. You know, over the time of giving these series of talks, spoken uh, a lot about Deepama, a teacher from uh, Calcutta, who died some years ago, and she was this quite tiny woman whose heart and mind was so vast. And she had tremendous suffering in her life uh, before she entered into the practice. You know, she had lost two of her children, she lost her husband, suffered tremendously from overwhelming grief, and was really driven to the practice by her suffering. And she had this amazing journey, you know, of quickly realizing high stages of awakening, of realization, you know, of different states of samadhi, of all the different powers of mind. But what most characterized her when you were with her was this amazing force field of love. So this is one, one Sufi teacher described being hugged by Deepama so thoroughly that all my six feet fit into her great, vast, empty heart 
with room for the whole of creation. And it was like that, her vast, empty, loving heart. That's what's possible. So with all of these people, when we're in their presence, their love is not because of who we are. It's not because of any position or title or wealth or status. It has nothing to do with that. It's simply because we're fellow living beings. That's the basis of their love. And this very special quality is the feeling of metta. You know, it's the Pali word for loving kindness. And it's the generosity and openness of the heart that simply wishes well for all beings. So there's a great simplicity in it. Simply wishing well for all beings. And although we derive great benefit from the feeling and practice of metta, metta itself does not seek self-benefit. It's not offered, it's not given with the expectation of anything in return. And even when we direct metta towards ourselves, it's simply the gateway to an open heart. And this has some very powerful consequences. Not having any expectation. Because of that, metta is not dependent on external conditions. It's not dependent on people or ourselves being a certain way. So this is really important. Metta does not depend on people being a certain way. It's given without expectation, without wanting. And for this reason, metta doesn't easily turn into disappointment or turn into ill will or jealousy, as love with desire and attachment so often does. So the feeling of metta is quite unique. And what gives it its great expansive power is that in the end, when it's well-developed and well-practiced, well-practiced, it makes no distinction between beings. It's not a feeling that's limited to those closest to us. In our lives, we may feel close to one or two or five or ten or maybe even a hundred people. But we don't feel close, it would be impossible to feel close to everyone in the world. Metta, though, has just this power to embrace all beings because it is the simple wish, may you be happy. It does have the, the power to embrace all. And for this reason, it's called one of the boundless states of heart and mind, one of the immeasurables. And we get a taste or a glimpse of this when we do the metta practice. And for those of you who have practiced in a systematic way, you know that at a certain point we start directing metta towards a neutral person. And we start with a benefactor, then a friend, then a neutral person. Well, when I was doing this 
practice in India and I got to the neutral person, I wasn't even quite sure at first what that meant. And so I was talking with Munindraji, my teacher, about it. I said, well, just pick somebody that you don't have any particular feelings about. So there was this old gardener in the Burmese Vihara in Bodhgaya where I was staying. And it's a person I saw every single day. And when Manindra was talking about the neutral person, I realized, yes, this is really a neutral person. And that shocked me. Because he was a person that I saw every day and he could have been a telephone pole in the way that I was relating to him. You know, so that was, that was really quite shocking. But then I started doing metta. He became my neutral person. And so I was spending all day, every day, just sending loving thought, loving feelings towards him. And it was amazing, the transformation. He became my love object. And every time I saw him, it's just my heart was smiling. This was a tremendous turning point in practice and in understanding, realizing that how we feel about people is up to us. It's not dependent on them. It does not ultimately depend on the other person or on their behavior. How we feel is up to us. And that's tremendously empowering when we realize that. There is great purity and kind of quiet happiness in moments of genuine metta. Because in those moments, it's not mixed with anything harmful. There's nothing unwholesome in those moments. The only wish is for others or ourselves to be happy, to be free of enmity, to be free of hatred, to be at peace. A moment of metta is really like a moment of pure gold. I want to read a little bit just from the Metta Sutta. This is the discourse the Buddha gave on loving-kindness, so this is just part of it in his words. So we should practice wishing in gladness and in safety, may all beings be at ease. Whatever living beings there may be, whether they are weak or strong, omitting none, the great or the mighty, the seen and the unseen, those living near and those living far away, those born and to be born, may all beings be at ease. Let none deceive another or despise any being in any state. Let none through anger or ill will wish harm upon another. Even as a mother protects with her life her child, her only child, so with a boundless heart should one cherish all living beings, radiating kindness over the entire world, spreading upwards to the skies and downwards to the depths, outwards and unbounded, free from hatred and ill will. Whether standing or walking, seated or lying down, free from drowsiness, one should sustain this recollection. This is said to be the sublime abiding. Now, they're beautiful words. It's just an expression of how we can live. 
These feelings of goodwill and kindness, they soften us. You know, our hearts and minds become smoother, more pliable, more gentle. And because of the softening, there is a lessening of many of our reactive judgments and comments about ourselves as well as others. You know, we become more patient and more caring with difficulties and disturbances. As we're less reactive, we're not so caught up in the patterns of our likes and dislikes. And it gives us more space for discerning wisdom. We can see more clearly in this field of metta, as we're less reactive, less judgmental, we can see more clearly what is wholesome and what is unwholesome. And seeing more clearly, we make wiser choices, which in turn leads to more happiness, more joy, and more metta, which leads to more clarity, which leads to wiser choices, which leads to more happiness. And so we're just on this spiral upwards. And as the metta, as this feeling of love, of openness, grows stronger and steadier, we feel much more tolerant of the quirks of others and of ourselves. We're less judgmental and we start to live gradually in this growing field of goodwill and good humor. We start holding ourselves and others with a much lighter heart. This was expressed in a very pithy way by the poet W.H. Auden when he said, Love your crooked neighbor with all your crooked heart. You know, and it's just that acknowledgement we're all in this together. The beauty and the power of the Buddhist teachings are that they not they're not something simply to admire, you know, in others, but rather there's something to practice and develop and cultivate in ourselves. So although it's easy to recognize the value and the benevolence of this state of metta, of this feeling, Still, there are many times when we feel it lacking in our lives, when our hearts are not soft and our hearts are not open, when our minds are not pliable. So it's helpful to understand why. There's a powerful force in the mind that comes masquerading as love, but which actually obstructs and hinders it. It is called the near enemy of metta. And it's called the near enemy because it looks like loving kindness, but in fact it is quite different. And that is the mind state of desire, of wanting, of longing, of attachment, of craving. The confusion of these two states, of love and desire, has enormous implications for our relationships, and for how we live our lives. So just think for a moment of when you have felt the most loving. 
it's a generosity of the heart. You know, it is the offering of that simple wish, may you be happy. So it's an offering of the heart, a generosity of the heart. Now think of when you felt at different times in your life a strong desire for or attachment to another person. In that strong desire or attachment, there's a feeling of wanting, of holding something for ourselves. It could be wanting pleasure, it could be wanting fulfillment, it could be wanting acceptance, even wanting to be loved. Now the energy movements of this generosity of metta and the wanting of desire are completely opposite. One is a giving and the other is a taking or a holding. So as we pay close attention to our own experience, both in formal meditation practice and just in our life, life experience, the distinction between metta and desire becomes increasingly clear. And it's really worth paying attention to these different feelings as they arise in our lives so we can discern the difference clearly. Not theoretically, not because somebody says so, but so we know it for ourselves. We can sometimes see even in the practice of loving-kindness itself, these two forces becoming intermingled. You know, as we repeat each metaphrase, is it a simple expression of goodwill, a simple gift of loving attention in the moment? Or are you practicing with one eye on what we're getting from it. And I just had that experience many times when I was doing intensive metta practice. You know, I'd be saying the phrases, but often just watching, am I getting more concentrated? Am I feeling more loving? How is it developing? And my attention was more on what I was getting or hoping to get from it than actually loving feeling for the other person. Or we might be saying the metaphrases, but the underlying motivation of them might be, may you be free of all those annoying, irritating qualities that make me feel aversion. <laughs> it's not really meta. Because again, we're forgetting that how we feel is up to us. The other person is not making us feel anyway. Years ago, I was in this relationship uh, for a while, and at one point we were having this little argument, and she turned to me, and in one of the all-time great lines, she said, stop making me feel aversion. <laughs> and I just started to laugh, <laughs> which did not help the situation. 
nobody makes us feel a certain way. How we feel is up to us. And when we get that, when we really understand that, there's a tremendous uh, possibility for us. There are also situations in our lives when we delude ourselves, when we think we're practicing metta, but it's really something else. I had an experience of this one time. I was visiting a friend out in Western Mass, and I was going for a walk, and just a neighbor had this little dog who was quite aggressive and kind of came out and was barking, barking. And so I started doing metta. I thought, I'll just chill it out. You know, be happy, be happy, be happy. And it came over and bit me. <laughs> and I realized I wasn't doing metta. <laughs> I was really saying, be happy, stay away. <laughs> be happy, don't come closer. You know, it, was, it was really an expression of fear, not love. So we can't fool the mind. And we can't fool the world. You know, we need to really look and see, is it a simple, genuine expression of goodwill? As we become more discerning, in our direct experience of the difference between the feeling of love and the feeling of desire, it then becomes possible to slowly disentangle these two. And we understand more clearly the consequences of each of these states respectively. You know, in our close relationships, Does fear or insecurity or possessiveness or projection, which of these states does that come from? Does that come from metta or from desire? Which of these two feelings brings us happiness, completion, contentment? Is it metta or is it desire? So we need to check it out. We need to discern the difference between the feelings and also understand what each one of them brings. So as we learn to distinguish between loving-kindness and desire, we then can make some wise choices. Which feelings do we practice? Which do we cultivate? Which do we let go of? What we think, frequently think, and ponder upon, that becomes the inclination of the mind. If we frequently have thoughts of desire, of wanting, of longing, that's the inclination. If we frequently have thoughts of loving-kindness, of goodwill, that becomes the inclination. So all of this is part of right thought, the second step of the Noble Eightfold Path. All of this doesn't mean, however, that as soon as we say the first phrase of metta, all our desires and attachments suddenly and miraculously disappear. But as we become more familiar with the unique characteristics of metta, and I found it a very good practice, both in the formal times of doing loving-kindness meditation, <clears throat> And just in my life, 
I found it very helpful when the feeling of loving-kindness, when the feeling of metta arises and is strong and is, and is clear, to actually stop for a moment and frame that feeling just for that moment. Really take a look at it, understand, oh, this is what the feeling of loving-kindness is like. So we really see it clearly and understand its very unique qualities. Because the more easily we recognize it, the more easy, the easier we can access it. And as we develop and cultivate this feeling, it becomes more the way we are than simply something we do. You've probably experimented, you know, in your lives in different ways with the cultivation of this feeling. I found it very uh, interesting and opening sometimes to practice metta just walking down a street. You know, a lot of people passing by, I can be walking down the street, perhaps lost in my own world or where I'm going, or even being mindful of my bodily movement, but disconnected from the other people around me. And then I can simply start doing metta for everybody I pass, for everybody on the street. May everyone here be happy. May everyone here be peaceful. And it's amazing the change that happens in a moment. Instead of walking down the street being disconnected, all of a sudden our heart, our minds have expanded and become inclusive. It's like we gather everyone up in our field of goodwill. In our understanding and practice of loving-kindness, Sometimes I find it easier to connect with the kindness aspect than with the love aspect. Because in English, love is a very grand word. You know, it's kind of a big word. And it's very subtle and complex in its meaning. And our understanding of love has very often been so powerfully conditioned by forces in our society. You know, our notion or our understanding of love may be conditioned by movies we've seen, or books, or advertising, or even by our own fantasies. And in the light of all this, people can often feel that they're not loving enough or that somehow they don't have a capacity for this kind of love. You know, maybe we think that it should be some great ecstatic feeling that sweeps us away you know, on waves of bliss, and then we get disappointed or discouraged when that's not our experience. For me, kindness is a much more humble word.
Kindness just feels very down to earth, very pragmatic. It's just a friendly and spontaneous responsiveness to people and situations around us. We can all be kind. That's not a complicated thing. Kindness is a basic and natural openness of heart that lets the world in. There was an article in the New York Times, and it's in uh, Sharon Salzberg's book, uh, Kindness Handbook. And it's a study, it was an article about a study showing that even babies, toddlers, under two years old, have this natural responsiveness, this natural quality of kindness in them. So I'll just read part of this article. It's quite, it's quite uh, amazing. Well, this, is, this is from the article. Oops, the scientist dropped his clothespin. Not to worry. A wobbly toddler raced to help, eagerly handing it back. The simple experiment shows the capacity for altruism emerges as early as 19 months of age. Psychology researcher Felix Warnikin performed a series of ordinary tasks in front of toddlers, young babies, such as hanging towels with clothespins or stacking books. Sometimes he appeared to struggle with the task. Sometimes he deliberately messed up. Over and over, whether Warnikin dropped clothespins or knocked over his books, each of 24 toddlers offered help within seconds, but only if he appeared to actually need it. Video shows how one baby glanced between Warnicka's face and the dropped clothespin before quickly crawling over, grabbing the object, pushing up to his feet, and eagerly handing back the pin. Warnicka never asked for the help and didn't even say thank you, so as not to taint the research by training youngsters to expect praise if they helped. After all, altruism means helping with no expectation of anything in return. And this is the key. The toddlers didn't bother to offer help when he deliberately pulled a book off the stack or threw a pin to the floor. So this young, 18 months old, kind of the natural responsiveness to help, natural responsiveness of kindness. It's quite amazing. So that's within us. So the question is, how do we reconnect with the spontaneous kindness of a toddler? You know, it's there. How do we reconnect with that in ourselves? The immediate cause for loving kindness to arise is the practice of focusing on the good qualities in people good qualities in ourselves. We're all a package of qualities. Some are desirable, some are not so desirable. When we don't see the good in people, 
you know, and focus instead on their annoying, irritating qualities, it's easy for ill will and judgment and anger and sometimes even hatred to arise. But if we can make it a practice, and it takes practice, to seek out and relate to the good in people, to the good in each person, then the feeling of loving-kindness arises quite spontaneously. Now, at first this might require some effort, a change of mental habit, because we've often habituated ourselves to focus on what's negative, to pick out what's wrong. So we need to change the habit of our mind, and it's the recognition that we all have an inner remote, and we can change the channel. You know, when we see that the mind is on the channel of aversion, seeing what's difficult in people, and if we see that, if we're mindful of it, we change the channel, and we just direct our attention, even if at first it takes some effort. We just change the direction of our attention, open up, become softer. Can we see the good in that person? And sometimes it's as basic as just recognizing that we're all human beings, that we're all suffering in one way or another. And just that, to recognize the commonality of us all. And as we develop this habit of seeing the good, even as we recognize the complexity you know, of the whole person, we really begin to respond in much more generous and loving ways. And as we do this, there's a wonderful consequence and that is, as we see the good in others, we begin to feel gratitude for the good that others have done for us in our lives. And the Buddha called gratitude one of the most beautiful and rare qualities of living beings. You know, we so easily live our lives taking for granted the kindnesses that people have shown us, the help that people have offered us. When we feel gratitude, whether it's to particular people or to life itself, when we feel gratitude, metta, loving-kindness, flows quite naturally. You know, in the silence of meditation, and this is one of the things that I've seen so often, as I'm sure you have, in the silence of a retreat, very often we start thinking of people we haven't thought of in years. You know, maybe people from far in our past. And because our minds are much more open and less defensive, we begin to see that metta is a basic quality of awareness itself. You know, as we're sitting, doing our mindfulness practice, 
we become much more open in these thoughts perhaps of people haven't thought of in years. And in that space of awareness, because we're less defensive, because we're more open, the feeling is one of goodwill, of loving-kindness. Deepa Ma says that's something interesting about this. Someone once asked her whether they should be practicing mindfulness or loving-kindness. And Deepa Ma answered, from my experience, there is no difference. For her, love and awareness were one. When you are fully loving, aren't you also mindful? And when you are fully mindful, is this not also the essence of love? I think this is an important understanding that even though there are some specific meditation techniques, they really are aspects of each other. All of this doesn't mean that we'll never get angry or annoyed, because we will. And as the Dalai Lama said, sometimes I do get angry, but deep in my heart, I don't hold a grudge against anyone. I think that's a very important statement. You know, it's acknowledging that we will have our reactions, but deep in our heart, at the foundation, at the base, are we holding on to grudges? Or is, that, is there that reservoir of goodwill? When we focus on the good of others, or focus on the good in ourselves, and feeling gratitude for that goodness, we can more easily open to a place of forgiveness. You know, not holding on so tightly to old grudges or hurts. And sometimes we can let go of an old hurt in a moment, just in a moment of seeing clearly. And sometimes it's a process, you know, that happens over time. A very beautiful practice at the beginning of a sitting, or perhaps the beginning of each day or the end of the day, we can just sit and simply ask for and extend forgiveness. If I have hurt or harmed anyone in my thought, in my words, in my actions, I ask forgiveness. And I freely forgive anyone who may have hurt or harmed or offended me. There's an unburdening of the heart. Even with very difficult people, we can reflect on our basic intention of goodwill. Sometimes we might need to adjust the phrases. Now this came up very strongly uh, after 9-11. When I was teaching a retreat, and we were doing the metta practice, and the person who was leading the metta, you know, we went through the different categories and suggested sending metta even to those, you know, who had flown the planes into the towers. 
Now, there were people from New York at that retreat who there was just no way, you know, and they, in a very honest way, said, there's no way that I can express metta for these people who cause so much harm and destruction. So it really made me reflect, what does metta mean in that context? You know, what would it mean to have a feeling of metta for someone who has done us or other people tremendous harm? And as I reflected on this, I realized that metta really is boundless. Because wouldn't it be possible for us to wish for all beings to be free of enmity, to be free of hatred? Is there anybody that we would exclude from that wish? Because those are the very causes of destructive action. And so our method does not always have to be, you know, love and light and sweet language. You know, may you be happy, may you be peaceful, which in certain situations just might not fit, might not resonate with us. So we look in each situation, what's the appropriate expression of metta? May you be free from hatred. May you be free from enmity. May you be free from ill will. May you be free from fear. These are things that we can wish for all. There's no one who needs to be excluded from that wish. And that is the power of metta. So the willingness to train the heart, to train the mind, whether in metta, in loving-kindness, or anything else, the training of the heart and mind requires great patience. It's not an instant gratification. It requires perseverance. It requires great patience. The Buddha called patience the highest devotion. You know, and it really is. It's just devotion to that which we most value. And so we simply persevere. We keep on practicing. And what we frequently think and ponder upon, that becomes the inclination of our minds. We really begin to see this transformation. I'd just like to close with one teaching from Nyoshal Ken Rinpoche, who was one of the great Dzogchen masters. And he was very earthy. And this teaching is very down to earth. That's what I like about it. I would like to pass on one little bit of advice I give to everyone. Relax. Just relax. Be nice to each other. As you go through life, simply be kind to people. Try to help them rather than hurt them. Try to get along with them rather than fall out with them. With that, I will leave you and with all my good wishes. It's so simple.
and it takes practice. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. What's the first thing you would do if you had an extra hour in your day? Would you meditate? Would you go for a run? Maybe you'd just like to rest for a while or take a nap. Therapy can help you find and prioritize what matters most so you can do more of it. It's a great way to increase self-awareness, develop coping skills, alter negative behaviors, and more. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash insight hour today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp.com slash insight hour.